Hi, and thank you for joining us on Dark Sky Conversations. Today, I am chatting with a gentleman from the United States of America, all the way from Hawaii, and I've had the joy of meeting Michael Marlin, Marlin, and he'll tell you about his name, I'm sure, uh, in a couple of Dark Sky conferences in the States and was uh, engaged by his absolute ability to talk and discuss ideas about dark skies and the movement. And today he'll be joining me about his book. I'm talking about his book, Astro Tourism. But as always, if you've got any questions and uh, like to hear a little bit more about his book, you can email me at marnie at darkskytraveller.com.au and we can forward questions on to him. But without further ado, please listen to our conversation with Michael and Marlon. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A starfield sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Well, it's been a little while between podcasts after a hectic Christmas season, but I'm so excited to talk to my guest today, who is Michael Marlin. And, you know, actually, you go by Marlin, don't you, Marlin, as I know you do. Yes, Marlin goes by Marlin. Yeah. So is there a history with that? Uh, Well, you kind of sort of kind of back in in the uh, 70s and 80s, I was a professional juggler. Uh-huh. And there was a number of, and I was going by Michael Marlin. And uh, then there was all of a sudden a bunch of other jugglers who were following in my footsteps with the name Michael. And I decided, I'll just drop the Michael and just go by Marlin. Uh-huh. And I've been going by Marlin for about 25 years now. Okay. And uh, I always get, oh, Marlin, like the wizard. And I go, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Isn't that Merlin, the magician? Yeah, I know. But, you know, they get the same thing, especially yeah. with the look. No, very good. Well, that sort of segues beautifully into what in into what we're going to talk about, which is you and your your ventures into dark sky movement and astrotourism. But and I was lucky to receive a copy of your your ebook, which is recently out there in the market called Astrotourism. That's a shame; it's just pinged. Anyway, we'll leave that going. I'll just make sure I turn off uh, my Outlook now. Um, and so, astrotourism. You've the, the lovely quote that I read off it was after the glowing lights of Las Vegas, the darkness of the night soothed my soul. So how do you go from being a performer, as you've just mentioned, a juggler, um, to a dark sky advocate? Tell me a little bit about your journey. Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, um, I was working both in Los Angeles and Las Vegas, and in between the two was this vast you know, this desert. And some friends of mine took me out into the desert to see Holly's Comet when it went by. And uh, we had to leave, we had to drive about three hours to get away from the glow of Los Angeles to really come to a dark sky. And once I was out there and I was looking at this, I'm going, my God, this goes by unnoticed every night because people's lights are on. 
And by that time, I had already been, you know, doing my juggling career for well over a decade. And, and so I started playing with performance art. And the first, uh, I started to do this work in the dark with a smudge stick. Mm-hmm. You know, the oilless age, and you blow on it, and it would glow, and you'd see my face. And I'd tap it, and it'd make all the little sparks, and it would look like the stars. And then there was a question, yeah. was, do, you, do you know another star besides the sun? The Milky Way galaxy is billions and billions of stars, and it goes by unnoticed every night because our lights are on. Isn't it ironic that light has traveled millions of light years to reach our eyes, and it's being shouted out right at the finish line mm. with a street light above our head? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that um, that was the beginning of this work that eventually became Luma, and I created a whole theatrical performance done in the dark with a cast of seven dressed in black manipulating illuminated objects, telling a story about light and the loss of our night sky. And this, mind you, this is back in the late 80s. Okay. And dark sky movement and light pollution was like, what? What's yeah. that? Right? Mm. So the but I bet, I bet there was still a, a real, fat, you know, I think I've seen, the, if, you, if you Google your work, you can, you can see, you know, what the performance work was and, and how spectacular it is. And, and I guess it was partly the, the contrast, the fact that people live in such lit up world, even now, you know, even then we were still living in very light polluted worlds. We, we, the, the contrast of darkness was, that was actually what made it work. The fact that it was. Yeah. Yes. Coming into a darkened theater. And just letting, you know, the, the first question I had, the, what I said at the beginning was, uh, did you know that it takes 35 minutes for the human eye to completely adjust to the dark? There'd be this long pause. Then I go, are you waiting? And then the audience <laughs> <laughs> laughed. And that would kind of like sort of kick off to the show and the, and the beginning of it to kind of give them that sense of it. So I did this work. I toured it for 20 years. Uh, it played on five continents, 15 countries, over 300 performing arts centers, the United States, including the Kennedy Center. And then in, in 2017, I did a show in Ta- a five-week run in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, and uh, called up one of the radio stations to get on and talk about the show and about Dark Skies over Tahoe. And they had me contact uh, um, Scott Fairbrand who was yeah. the executive director of the IDA at the time. And he came on and joined me on the show. And then afterwards he goes, oh, I want you to come to the 2017 Boston uh, IDA AGM. And I want you to give a talk about whatever you want to talk about. You know, and I said, well, how about how the arts can enact social change? So I did a talk then in 2017. It went so well, they had me back in 2018. And I did another one, which was about if we're saving the, gen- if we're saving the dark skies for the next generation, what are we doing now to entice the next generation? Mm-hmm. So I laid out these different ideas of ways to engage uh, the, the, the younger people. And, um, and then there I met uh, Connie Walker uh, from IAU. And they basically drafted me going, gosh, would you be a dark sky ambassador for the IAU? And it was like, yeah, sure. And so that's what kind of led me into this. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, I, I, uh, gave a couple, I, I did a TEDx talk called Embracing Darkness, which was all about light pollution and, uh, and how, how much pollution is being created by making light. Mm. It's true. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a twin problem, isn't it? It's not just about the fact that we're not seeing the night sky and then it's, it's 
endangering, you know, the well-being of, of flora and fauna, but it's or harming them and, and impacting them. But it's also the the fossil fuels and everything that have have been driving the 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 consumption of light at night and have added to another problem basically so yeah it's it's more, yeah, it's more than a one problem problem yeah oh absolutely uh and, and um so um um i wrote this book called astrotourism stargazers eclipse chasers and the dark sky movement and as i was doing all of this research i started to uncover more and more information about how many different things that dark sky initiatives impact. And um, so when you adopt dark sky initiatives, you're reducing energy costs, you're reducing financial costs, you're reducing greenhouse gases, you're improving safety, you're improving, you know, uh, protecting human health, you're protecting night pollinators, you're protecting migratory birds, um, you're preserving cultural heritage. Uh, your movie aesthetics, you create an economic driver. And that, the fact that it's becoming an economic driver, I, I write about in the book and make a, a strong point about this because it's the first book that's actually written for the business side that by creating a monetary value to a dark sky, people will be inclined to save it. Mm. Because we're not necessarily driven by the higher angels of ourselves. We're driven by our purses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the other thing is, though, is that there is, an in, there is a, a cost often involved in creating these dark sky places. Sometimes it requires retrofitting. Sometimes it's labor just to keep, you know, the place clean and tidy and, and to be an information source. Sometimes it is running tours and programs and information seminars. So there, there are expenses sometimes involved in, in, in creating these places. But there, there is also a really big financial benefit. And, and part of that benefit is, is the human well-being that's associated with it. And you can't actually monetize that sometimes. Um, no, yeah. no. You can't, you can't, yeah, there's a lot of it that has no uh, monetary uh, value to it. And as far as uh, pollution goes, Changing your lighting is really, really inexpensive compared to cleaning up a watershed mm -hmm. or a lake or a river. Those take a lot of money. Mm. And, and, and changing out the light bulbs is, is really kind of nominal compared to other types of pollution that we have to clean up. That's a very good point. And then and something that I think is one of the benefits of, of doing light pollution and, and dark light pollution mitigation and dark sky enhancement work is that it's actually something that's really easily achieved once it, it's not you know it's not a 400 year cycle to remove plastic degradation or oil spills or any of those sorts of things it's quite quick it's literally <laughs> and that releases toxic dumps and radiation i mean all those things are like woof. You know, exactly. Things that individual, the individual person can do by changing out lights on their porch or whatever. You know, it's one of the comments I make in my TEDx talk. Are you willing to lift a finger? And I show a picture of a finger slipping or flipping off a switch. Are you, are you willing to lift a finger for climate change? Mm, I really like that. That's a very good. I like that. That's very good. 
<laughs> so I, I think you're probably a little bit aware that, that you know, one of the things that I, I've done in our history, in fact, what actually led me to the Dark Sky Movement was taking people to, well, like the, the initial thing was actually to see a total solar eclipse. Um, and I, that's what started my business with, with, with seeing that people engaged in astronomy tourism, even if they had no interest in seeing the stars or had any understanding. You know, I, th I think at first I thought it was going to be a series of people wearing brown cardigans looking through telescopes the whole tour and, and not, you know, not, not engaging with one another at all, just looking through eyepieces. But the more I got to understand the impact that the, the dark environment has on people, is it's enormous, and um, it, well, I guess what I was going to say is: Have you seen a, a total solar eclipse? Have you experienced that feeling where the, that that happened? Right, you've seen two. So, did you have that awe-inspiring moment, and did you see how that impacted other people as well? Well, the first one I saw was uh, I think it was seventy-eight, and, and it was uh, somewhere in north, going across the the northern latitudes of North America. Of, of the United States, and it was in the it was February, and we drove. We uh, rented a car, drove another four hours to get another seven seconds of totality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're out there in this completely snow-covered field, right? It's just blank, mm, beautiful. And then, when, oh, it was beautiful. And then when when the the, the eclipse happened, it's like somebody dropped a shade. Because all of us are used to seeing the transition that slowly happens in the night. You know, you have the, you know, the, the civil um, the twilight and then the nautical twilight and the astronaut. And it goes on like it takes like two hours before it's totally dark. This happens in a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. Boom! And all of the stars are all there at once. And I thought to myself, no wonder ancient people thought the world was coming to an end. Because then all of a sudden, oh my God, the, the sun is back. So yes, that is what was so startling. And then after that, it's like, wow, the stars are there all the time, even during the day. I just can't see them because this one here close to us is is, is blinding them all out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is an absolute, and, and the thing is, I think, that you've, you said it perfectly there is that 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 historical aspect the ancient people wondering you know how did this happen or actually like predicting it as well some 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 groups yeah and and you think how clever you know we're so stupid in a way we, we've taken 200 years to be able to, to map this but people about tens of thousands hundreds you know tens of thousands of years ago anyway were able to, to map this out and work out that this was going to happen so um i guess one of the things that I picked up in your book too, though, was on that, that everybody has a birthright to see, to experience darkness and to see the, the, the dark sky and then the night. And, it, and and I think that's one of the things that ties me back to cultural heritage, the aspect that we're losing with light pollution. And I don't know, maybe you've got more thoughts on that as well. But... Yes, I do. Uh, before we before we completely uh, uh, put the uh, eclipse in the back pocket, oh, yeah. one of the things I found out about eclipses is that other than war and famine, a total eclipse of the sun moves more people to migrate than anything else, than more famine. To migrate? Yeah, temporary migration. Why is After that? 
after Warren Payment totally clips. That's the greatest mover of people. Oh, you mean you mean in modern day society where everyone's chasing it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It is a, it is astounding, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. And, and and one of the things that I write about in the book that I'm kind of like worried about is that in 2014, when the great solar eclipse goes through North America, unless the cities make the intention of turning off their grids, all of their streetlights will come on and during the solar eclipse and people won't be able to see the stars. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping something happens to that. But But to answer your question about you know, everybody's having this birthright. You know, we've we've had that connection to the night sky for 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 our history uh, as humans as long as we've been able to look up. And only within the last, you know, seventy years, within the course of a lifetime, that's been taken away from us. And you know, one of the issues about um, light pollution is our ocular nerve had to have evolved being exposed to sunlight, starlight, moonlight, and firelight. That was it. So you know that our eyes and our optic nerve evolved to them. Now, within just the last 150 years, we have this thing called electric light, and we haven't been able to evolve to that. And so all these health issues come along with being exposed to this intensely bright white light. There was a study... Uh, by ANSYS, which is basically the French Ministry of Health and Safety. And it was 2019 saying this this high-intensity white light is actually causing permanent damage to our retinas, which is the stepping stone to blindness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of my early guests was Dr. Stephen Mason, who'd who'd done a lot of research on this, particularly uh, using screens and the the use of backlit screens, et cetera, come with lights. And he, I, it was fascinating just to hear the number of people that are basically losing their sight earlier and earlier, particularly Asian cultures, um, partly because of their preference of lighting as well. That They, they yeah. do have a colour lighting preference for a very high blue content. But, yeah, it's it, 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 this is not insignificant. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not. And, you know, these new cars have... A lot of new cars have these LED headlights and they're blinding. And I explain it to people. It's because your your pupil is trying to constrict to protect the retina. So I tell everybody, get yellow driving glasses. That helps really mitigate uh, that. And I wear them. And otherwise, it's just like your, your, your night vision is just totally blown out by this white LED coming around the corner. I know. Every time I give a public talk, there's someone that raises their hand and says, excuse me, can you tell me what we can do about these horrible headlights? Yeah. Yellow glasses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll give them that hint. So, Michael, just going back to the whole, oh, sorry, I called you Michael. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> with um, astrotourism, besides eclipses, why do you think it's such a successful medium to bring people to understand the importance of darkness? Well, um, I, I have on a, uh, have a my place is in Hawaii and it's you know we have some really dark skies here and I have another operate a little Airbnb and there's so many times when I greet people when they step out of their car and they look up and it's like oh my god the sky's here because they're coming from places like Los Angeles or Chicago 
and they just don't see it. And all of a sudden, they are now exposed to the rest of the universe that they belong to. Mm-hmm. And I like to say, if we can't see the heavens that we belong to, how long does it take before we forget that we belong to the heavens? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a, I think, you know, even secularly, a connection that we have with the cosmos that touches us to our core in a way that we can't really necessarily always put into words. I mean, this is what poets are for, why they wanted to send a poet up into space. Because <laughs> I didn't know that. Is that what they wanted to do? Yeah. I mean, initially they wanted to do that for early in the early space programs. Yeah. Like, it was like, what are we going to send? They thought about sending surfers. They thought about sending acrobats, you know, because of the gyration and all of these different things. You know, maybe we should send a poet because how, who's going to be able to describe what they're seeing better than that? So yeah. and then eventually they, they landed on, you know, fighter pilots. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think the, it, it's, not, it's not just the eclipses that people are coming out to see. There's meteor showers. There's the aurora borealis. There's lunar eclipses. Um, I got to see one recently that happened here in Hawaii, a full lunar eclipse. I'm on my roof and the moon is full and it's red and I can see the stars around the moon. And you can never see that because the moon blinds out all of the other stars. But that night, it's just like, wow, the stars around the moon. And I'll never forget that image. It's just these things that stick with you. They're indelible. You know, they really burn into your memory and you, and you can't you can't get away with it. And I think that's why there's so many planetariums in the world, because that's really a form of virtual, I mean, astrotourism. You're going mm-hmm. to see the stars without having to, you know, travel, you know, hundreds of miles to, to, to get away from the city lights. Mm-hmm. And so- Two thoughts came through my head then. One is is that there's a word in Spanish, and I've got to look it up. I haven't been able to find it. You might know it, but it's something about it. it it's a word that doesn't exist in English, but it's it, it, I guess it's something like experiential learning. But it, what it is is that you because you're taking in things through all your five senses at once when you travel, when you're outdoors and you're standing in a dark sky and you can hear things and you can see things and you can feel things, that that is a richer experience and a, a richer something that really gets to your heart quite quickly. And I think that's what's quite magical about dark sky tourism is it actually it it activates a, a sense that perhaps you haven't actually relied on before. So you might be always looking on visual, but because that's slightly diminished, you might be hearing more, you might be feeling more. I don't know. It's just, that's a bit of a theory I have around it. Well, there is stillness. Mm. Out, and, and most people don't have the opportunity to really experience stillness because it's just overloaded with stimuli in our culture. Sights, smell, food, touch—you know—it's just coming at us, uh, in, in just a nonstop. And here, to be able to just be out in this, out in this darkness, and and see the the turning of the sky because of the turning of the earth—it's slow, but it's still there. I mean, even the cowboys 
in the American West realized that, you know, uh, when uh, uh, a constellation moved, uh, uh, like, what, what, what would that be? Uh, uh, 40, 45 degrees, right? From like the horizon, they knew that three hours had passed. Mm-hmm. 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 And in so much of humanity, you know, I write about this extensively in the book, you know, our history as humans are linked to the stars. We learned how to navigate over land and the sea, which allowed us to spread our species. We learned when to plant, when to harvest, when the fish would run, when to gather eggs, when to shear the sheep, Mm. all of things based on that, when the animals would migrate. Now, in South America, they have they don't see, they don't look at the constellations. They look at the dark spots mm. and, and put their images onto those dark spots. Sometimes they do with like Aboriginal Australians or Indigenous Australians do the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. exactly. Uh, mm. and, and so there's a, a, a dark snake, a dark cloud snake. And when it comes up out of the horizon, when the sun is setting, that's when the snakes would start to come out of the ground after their hibernation. And then once it starts to go back down into the ground, that was the end of the season and the snakes would go back into the ground to hibernate. So as above, so below. That is absolutely, isn't it amazing? I mean, it's pretty much the same, other than the fact that it's not a snake, it's an emu that the um, First Nations Australians saw. That they, and they knew that when it was in the sky, it was ready to, to meet, meet a male. When it was crossing the sky, it was running. And then it would come back down and sit on the eggs. So it's perfect when it was, yeah. So it, it is amazing. And I believe in Africa, some of the African groups saw a giraffe in the same patch of blackness. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it would make sense that you would be projecting whatever was in your natural world around you up into the sky. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ong. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. I usually, I have asked all our other guests this and maybe you've already given it to me with your eclipse, but what's your most memorable, what was it, what was the minute that, or the moment that stood stood you in, the, you know, looking for dark skies, wanting them more, you know, is there a moment that stands out more than any other? Well, I mean, you know, the, the well, I, you know, it's funny, I, I actually have some early, early childhood memories. I couldn't have been six or seven years old and being in my backyard. Which was where? Florida. And my folks had a farm. They sold the farm. We moved to Florida. I remember being in the backyard going, wow, it's really super dark. And then the first streetlight that went up in the neighborhood, it was like, huh, what's that? And so that was really kind of a, you know, curious thing and didn't really give it much thought. But, you know, going to see Haley's Comet, it wasn't really all that spectacular. But my friend had a telescope. He was an amateur astronomer. He goes, yeah, that's kind of okay. But take a look at this. And he, we, you know, he slews the telescope around to see Orion's nebula. And I looked through that and it's like, it just blew my eyes out. It's like, holy, whoa, look at that. And so, yeah, that's one of those moments, moments I'll never forget. You know, I got to see a meteor shower and counted 200 in an hour. Wow. Mm, that's a yeah. good night. <laughs> yeah. Good night. I, re- I remember some bolides that I saw while in the Grand Canyon. 
I mean, the ones that's like go all the way across the sky and you're like, you're hooping and hollering and jumping. Yeah. And, yeah. And I, don't, I don't care what you say that, you know, you can have any number of fireworks displays or any laser light shows or anything that you can have, but nature just does it best. It really is beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I like fireworks shows, though. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, but living in Hawaii, I think there's some beautiful, spectacular events, having been there a few times and seen some, you know, beautiful lava flows and, and, oh, and yeah. water and, and, and there, you know, yeah. 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 You would, you, you live quite close to all this, though, don't you? Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, I've been here long enough to see, you know, um, things that have been part of our neighborhood taken away, warm ponds and lakes and beautiful bays that were filled in with the lava. And I've mm. hiked up right up to it, you know, that w- and, and that's really what was the, the genesis for the, the show Luma that I created. I saw people like glazed at the light. It reminded me of deer, you know, mm. they freeze in the headlight. And then I thought, you know, plants turn and face the sun and moss will go to a flame or a light bulb. And I go, gee, all the life is drawn to light. And then I thought, gee, the whole world would want to see a show like that. And then the next thought was, oh, my God, I'm going back into show business. <laughs> yeah. That would be my addition. It's so true, isn't it? We, we, you know, we can talk about for example, kangaroos and, and rabbits in the in the headlights that just stand there and stare as it's coming towards them. But we're just the same. We are transfixed by light and want to know more about it and we know why it's there and how it's moving and yeah, it's and it, well, it's it's you know the light is only a possible when there's a shadow. Mm-hmm. So. Nighttime is just simply the shadow of the earth blocking out the sun. Mm-hmm. And now all of a night you can see the lights. When it's totally ubiquitous, then there is really no, you know, there's no contrast. Mm. And that's the thing I think that pulls us in is the contrast of the light against the dark, yeah. which is how we ended up setting the night on fire. You know, we just Let's get more lights and more lights. And then pretty soon it's just like, wow, look at what we've lost with all of these lights that are on now. All we've done is com- compli- c- 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 started a, a landscape, as someone called it. You know, it's just it's just one light competing with another. It's a competition sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. It, well, it's like going to Las Vegas. You know, it's just like there's just so much light that it's just, you know, everything just drowns everything out. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, the, the next project, I've been involved with a project called the, a one-hour weekly television series mm-hmm. called The Astro Tourist. And um, it's, it's, um, we're, we're looking for a home for it. It's, it's being uh, passed around the, you know, the, the agencies and whatnot to, to see the, where it's going to go. But basically, the, the gist of the show is going to these dark sky places and interviewing the indigenous people and having them tell their stories of the sky and then bringing those stories to life with visual effects, computer-generated graphics, dramatizations, going to the different places in the world to the celebrations that are based on celestial events, mm-hmm. which most of them are. Um, um, having a, a, a section each, each week called the Zodiac Corner where we 
talk about that one particular constellation and how to find it. Everybody knows what their zodiac is, even if they're not into astrology. It's like, well, your sign. Here's how you can find it. You know, this is how you can your sign up there. And then we'll also leverage that hominin and invite stars on to talk about the stars. <laughs> Very nice. Well, that because I was going to ask you what comes next after this book, but you've you've you've, you've always got a project, haven't you? It's fantastic. Mm. Well, one of the things I learned in Hawaii is if you if you if you don't keep moving, something will grow on you. <laughs> it's true in Hawaii. Absolutely. Now that sounds fabulous, and I think um, the uh, it was one of the things that I've come to know about you because we've met a couple of times at dark sky conferences in the states and cross paths and I think actually initially I reached out to you before I even met you to see if you could you could bring your your light show to Australia yeah so that that's how we first crossed paths but um yeah I I think the idea of that you that you bring frequently is that crossover between well steam so the science and the arts meeting and, and crossing um science technology and, and engineering arts and maths isn't it in australia i don't know if it, the, the analogy stands in the states as well Green, yep. but i've heard you know you were also talking about creating a, a game and it was a game yeah. Yes. <laughs> i started you know a, a, a friend of mine is a game designer and we started talking about some different things. And I, and I have the storyboards basically laid out called the uh, Star Seekers Guide to the Galaxy. And it was to teach, it was a video game that teach ki teaches kids about astronomy and astrophysics and sets them through all these different paces, you know, and it, it starts off with, you know, um, having to gather up the lights on the planet, right? And you have to use a different light, different device to grab a different light, whether you're grabbing it off of a street light or a headlight or a stadium light, and you put it on your space elevator and you pull it up into the sky and you start building your constellation. Very nice. And you, yeah. So you're taking the lights up to the sky. <laughs> yes, exactly. Putting the stars back up and you only have a certain amount of time. And if you don't get it done within time, it all falls back down again of shooting stars. Oh, well, over again. And then, you know, the first one you build is Orion and then Orion comes to life and goes, good job, star seeker. Where do you want to go next? Long <laughs> across the universe and, you know, has to, you know, all kinds of adventures going through the catacombs of the Vatican to see how the telescope was built and, you know, mm. crashing cars together to have all of these atoms and you have to build your periodic table, <laughs> grabbing different atoms. And You've got it all covered. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, well, you know, with the video game, there's a lot of layers, right? Yeah. You have to, you know, engaging the the the, the player mm. to go fur further. And again, this is where, you know, art and science comes together. And I think what happens in the brain is that becomes a left, right uh, experience. You know, the art is engaging one side, the right side. Mm. The science is in, engaging the left side. And, um, you know, I like to say that when my right side left, I've got nothing left to write. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things, though, isn't it? That when one half of the brain turns off and the other one turns on, you can actually have some really beautiful and unique creative thoughts. You know, where, where you, if you're aligned always on one side of the brain, that's not always 
doesn't you need, you need both, both, both spheres functioning, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Well, you know, Einstein said that imagination was more important than knowledge mm. Mm. because knowledge is a fixed, right? And imagination is endless. Mm. Yeah. It's where the in, 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 innovation starts. So we're sort of coming close to the end of our time and, I think you've proven to the world in our podcast right now that you're what I like to term an ecopreneur, that you look for every opportunity to to try and, and benefit the environment. And you mentioned earlier on that there were, you know, how do how that there are opportunities from astrotourism and dark sky movements for for people to make money. And I, I just wonder if it, what you if, you know you could branch out on that and give people a few ideas and ideas for their own ecopreneur op opportunities. Oh, yes. Well, um, you know, the, uh, this is what the book was written for anybody who lives under a dark sky and wants to cater to the astrotourist. Because a lot of people who live in rural places look up at the dark sky and they go, doesn't everybody see this? And they don't. And, and this is, you know, uh, so um, I'm going to be going to central Nebraska and working with these little tiny towns, you know, like the biggest one is 365 people, <laughs> but they still show up on the Bortle map, you know, the big, which is, you know, blew me away. One of, one of the towns only has 19 people and you can still see that little blip uh, you know, from, from, from space. And they're about to uh, uh, name a, an area inside of central Nebraska, a dark sky uh, uh, sanctuary, I believe. And they're right on the first of it, right? They're right there next to it. I say, hey, you guys are the doorway to darkness. So it would be me going there and, and you know, lecturing the students and the public and, you know, walking around town at night and going, this is a, a light that we can change. Let's do something different here. You know, the um, as far as creating an attraction, you know, what are you going to do once people show up? You have to give them context. You have to connect. The dots, which is really where it came from. And by doing that, it's just like letting them know what the stories are. There's lots and lots of stories about the same thing. It's not only stories about the, from the ancient past, but the ones that we tell currently about the stars. You know, there's a Star Trek episode that uses the same uh, star, C Alpha 5, which was uh, named in the Bear Constellation, uh, uh, the, the, the Bear Classifications. Johannes mm -hmm. Bears. And, uh, you know, it was the part of the uh, Pegasus story. The, 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 the sea monster. Mm -hmm. And, and now here it is, Star Trek is using that same star, but telling it, uh, it's telling a different story about it. Mm -hmm. So there's creating a, a soundscape for people once they're outside. And, you know, that's a real important part of it because a lot of times we connect a, a, a song or a melody with a memory. So that's something to do. Um, I even talk about, you know, offering up a, a, a series of 12 dinners for each full moon uh, uh -huh. and inviting people to come out and picnic under a full moon. Because uh -huh. I mean, what's, what's more enchanting than a swooning moon over two lovers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's... Um... And that's easy because no one can say, oh, there's no light. It's too, too unsafe. It's whatever, blah, blah. They can come up with every excuse. It's not. It's, it's so beautifully bright. It's wonderful. Mm. God, and to be able to see the world in all of these grays and silver and 
ghostly shades. I mean, again, it's something that people who live in the cities don't get to experience that. And it's, it's truly, it, it's, it's a magical experience. And what I mean by magical is that it, it activates aspects of ourselves that we didn't even know was there. No, no. I know there's all the, the, the tales of people going mad around full moons and things as well. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 won't, I won't go into the, the science or the non-science of that. But it, it's interesting that, that, that people did recognise the, the, the cycle of the moon. And we, we, I've done events, and I, I'm sure I've said this before, where I've said right at the very beginning, everybody shut your eyes and tell me what the cycle of, you know, where are we? Is it a full moon? Is it a half moon? Is it a quarter moon? Yeah. And they wouldn't have a clue. Even, yeah. even if they're outside, you know, and they've only just arrived and they haven't taken it in. So, you know, we've really lost contact. If we can't recognise that there's a big honking thing in the sky shedding all that light down at you, <laughs> you we've, we really yeah. have lost contact. Yeah. We have lost contact, and there's an expression that says, with the invention of indoor plumbing, we lost our contact with the night sky. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Still, I'll take indoor plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, it is, you know, there's, there's so many ways that we've, we've tracked the, 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 the sky and the stars in my book, there's a whole chapter about sundials, which I call star clocks. They're star clocks. Let's be honest. Yeah. And some of them just truly remarkable, you know, and, and filled with pithy sayings. Like one of these hours will be your last. Yeah. Like that really gives you a chance to contemplate your mortality. And when you're looking at the stars at night, you have a chance to contemplate your eternity. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and where we began, I think that's the other thing, isn't it? You know, everyone was curious what, what, what started all of this. Not necessarily where it's all going to end. Where did, where do we start? Well, you know, it, you know, I like to, I like to think that, you know, it's where we came from and it's where we'll go back to and a full circle back to that little poem I did with the smudge and this, this sage stick. Mm. The last line was, so come with me far away from the cities, out into the countryside, and I'll show you where we came from, and I'll show you where we go to, and you won't be afraid of death anymore. Very nice. I think that's a perfect spot to end. So I'm going to say perfect, yeah. Thank you very much, Marlon. I, I really encourage everybody. So where can they find your book? Where, where, where can they purchase a copy? You can, you can go online. You can go directly to the publisher, Business Expert Press, um, and type in Astro 21 to get a 20% discount, or you can find it online at Amazon or any number of book distributors. But again, it's called Astro Tourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. By Michael Marlin. Marlin. Yeah. By Marlin. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for being a guest. And, and yeah, if anyone has any questions, can they email me and send, send them through to you? If you, if you want to more about you. Please, please do. Please do. And thank you so much for having me on. This was a joy. It it's really been fun. fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. And thanks for, for sending a little bit of Hawaiian inspiration my way from, from yesterday, as it is, as we sit in our different time zones. So thank you very much. 
Catch up soon, Louis. And enjoy the dark. Thank you very much. Thanks, Marlon. Aloha.